Exodus chapter 10. We'll be starting in verse 21 together this morning. We've been walking through the book of Exodus together. And as we've done that, we've seen in the last three weeks that God has finally gone on the attack. God has told Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, that he will in fact free his people, Israel, from bondage. The question for Pharaoh is, is he going to make God show his power to do it, or will he submit? And what we've seen as Pharaoh has hardened his heart week after week is that God is mounting an attack against Pharaoh and the Egyptians in order to keep his promises to his people. So we've seen these plagues and we pick up this morning looking at the, uh, the, the ninth plague and then the beginning of the tenth plague. So let's read Exodus chapter 10 starting in verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord, your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know what we must serve the Lord with until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. But the Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord. About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. 
And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Father God, my prayer this morning is that you will make clear things that are confusing to us from your word. My prayer is that you will open the spiritual eyes of our hearts to see who you are and what you've done. To see your purpose in giving us this story. To see, Lord, how this applies, not just to ancient people thousands of years ago, but how this story is extremely relevant to each and every one of our lives and teaches us about who God is and how God acts and what he calls us to. God, I pray that you will give us hearts that will focus on you, even for this short time. Give us spirits that are teachable and moldable by your word. We pray that your spirit will take your word and apply it to our lives so that souls are saved and saved saved are sanctified. God, we pray that you'll be with us now. In Christ's name I pray, amen. In this ninth plague of judgment, God brings darkness upon Egypt. A darkness that lasts for three entire days. This is not a cloudy sky like when a storm comes in because the text tells us it is, in fact, pitch dark outside. It's darker than a a normal night sky that has moonlight and stars so that you can still see around. All of those things are hidden. It is completely black, a darkness that none of us have likely ever experienced. It can't be explained away by an eclipse because it lasts for three days, and that's not how eclipses work. This can't be explained away by any natural phenomena. Instead, this can only be explained as a supernatural act of judgment from the Creator God who has called Egypt and Pharaoh to repent and to let his people go, but who will stand opposed when they refuse. All throughout sin, darkness, or all throughout the Bible, darkness is equated with sin, with ignorance, with judgment, even with death. From the beginning to the end, darkness is very rarely considered to be a good thing. Imagine what it would be like If tomorrow morning you woke up and the sun did not rise. Imagine those of you who wake up because the sunrise and the light outside begins to come in from your window if it never came up. Imagine a night that never ends. If you're like me, you've probably over the course of your life had many nights that were sleepless. You're anxious about something, you just can't sleep, maybe there's a reason for it that's explainable, or maybe there's not, but when you can't go to sleep and everyone else is asleep, one of the most welcomed, pleasant sights after a sleepless night is what? 
the break of dawn. Finally, everyone else is going to wake up and be experiencing the wakefulness that I have been experiencing. When we find ourselves down in the depths of despair, in a valley or a storm or a season of trial, sometimes it's the constants in life that will keep us going. The constancy of the sunrise and the sunset day after day. That's why the fictional character Annie saying what? The sun will come out tomorrow, right? No matter what you're going through, the sun's coming up tomorrow. The world's not over. There's some constant in this universe full of chaos and hardship. But not so in Egypt. At the command of the Lord, darkness descends on Egypt and the darkness will not leave until it's commanded to by God. This kind of constant, non-stop, complete darkness would unnerve each and every one of us. It would signal our alerts that something in the world is messed up. Something is wrong. But for the Egyptians... This darkness not only would unnerve them, it would even hold more significance. Because for the Egyptians, the sun was a god that they worshipped. They had many gods that they worshipped in Egypt. They were polytheists. In fact, each of these plagues, the plague of the Nile and the frogs and the storm and the hail and all the plagues was God showing the Egyptians that He is the true God and all of their false gods are not real. All of their false gods not only don't exist, but if they did exist, they would be weak and puny compared to Him. But the sun was their supreme God. The Egyptians had a false god that they worshipped, the god of the sunrise. They had a god that was the god of the noon sky. They had a god of the sunset. But their supreme god was named Amun-Re. He was considered to be their creator. He was considered to be the one who, who had spoke them into existence. Just like we know the God of the Bible spoke everything into creation in Genesis 1. This was their supreme deity. It was more powerful than all the other gods that they trusted in. And each day as the sun would set... For the Egyptians, that would represent death. It would represent the underworld and their worldview. But knowing that Amun Re would come back the next morning, knowing the constancy of the sunrise would give them hope in a hard life. It would give them hope of resurrection. They believed, in fact, that the eternally rising sun could never be destroyed. Of all their gods, Amun Re was supreme. And what's more is this. Pharaoh was not just an Egyptian guy that wore an interesting looking headdress. Pharaoh was considered to be the son of Amun-Re. He was considered to be the personal embodiment of the sun God. Which is why Pharaoh in Egypt was given such unrivaled power and allegiance by all Egyptians. They literally considered him as Pharaoh to be the son of the sun, God, Amun Re. They considered him to be a deity in the flesh. This is why they would worship Pharaoh as a god. They would ascribe majesty to him. They would ascribe eternity to him. And this is why Pharaoh did not like when people came into his land and started making demands. He was used to calling the shots. 
But the God of the Hebrews was not interested in bargaining with a puny false god. He was interested in coming in and showing his might and flexing his muscle. All of these previous plagues, one through eight, have been attacks by God against these Egyptian false gods so that the true Lord Yahweh could show his supremacy as the one true God. But God had saved the biggest false god to take down for last, to show his power over the sun god, their supreme deity, Amun-Re. All he had to do was make the lights go out. And as the true creator who made the sun in the first place, God alone had the power to do just that. As God had sent the first eight plagues upon the Egyptians, the Egyptians and Pharaoh had seen that the God of Moses, the God of Israel, had power. That he had power that was outmatching all of these false gods. But all along the way through these first eight plagues, the sun, their supreme god, was still rising each morning and setting each night. They could always trust an Amun Ray, their supreme god, because he was still ruling and reigning in their minds. But with the pitch darkness of the ninth plague, the people who worshipped the sun began to realize that even their sun god could not save them. That even the light of day was controlled by the Lord. Amun-Re and his son Pharaoh have met their match. They can do nothing but beg for mercy in our text, crying out to Moses, take the darkness away. Once again, you have done what you said you were going to do. Take the darkness away. You might hear this this morning and think, well, I don't worship the sun. I don't worship the moon. I don't worship... Anything in nature, that's silly. And people who worship things like that are foolish. But friends, like the Egyptians, we today are prone to trust in and worship many things that are not the true God. The Bible tells us that we have idols on our hearts. We trust in the things God has made more than in God. And it might look differently for you and I than it did for the Egyptians. You might not be worshiping the Nile River or a deity that's supposed to have power over the frog population, or a god who's supposed to have power over light. But we're all tempted to trust in something more than God. For you, it might be comfort. It might be man's approval. If only I can have that, then I will be satisfied. Then my life will be worth living. Maybe it's control of your circumstances or your independence. As long as I have certain rights and certain control, then I can... Live life the way that I think will bring joy and peace and happiness. Maybe for you the thing that you trust in more than God is your safety, your family, your possessions, your money, your bank account, your job security. Maybe it's traditions that you love that make you feel comfortable. Maybe it's technology that you trust can overpower any hardship you face. Maybe it's hobbies. Maybe it's being respected by others. What is it in your life? That you believe that if you can keep it, or if you can gain it, then you will truly have peace and joy. What is it in your life that you find yourself running to in times of trouble, that you find that you can't cope when you don't have it, and that you get angry when it's taken away? What is it in your life that you can rejoice when you finally get it? Friends, however you answer that question, that is your God. 
That is what you are ascribing worship and devotion and trust to. And we must remember that the God of the Bible, the one and true God who's spoken to us here, He is a jealous God because all true love is jealous. He will display His supremacy over our idols just as He does over the false gods of the Egyptians. Whether that false god for us be a relationship that we don't think we can live without, man's approval that we must have or we can't cope, or our comfort that we trust in, whether it be the sun in the skies or something unlike the sun. Friends, God is not in the business of sharing our devotion with anything. He calls us to submit our lives and surrender to Him. After three days, what does Pharaoh do? He goes and he tells Moses that Israel can now go and serve the Lord. They can leave. You can leave and this time you can even take your children with you. Because in a previous plague, he said all the men can leave, but not the women and children. Moses didn't go for that. So the plagues continued. Here he says, you can take your kids. You just got to leave all your stuff. Leave all your livestock. Why? Well, I need some collateral. I need something to make sure that you'll return. And if you take everything with you, then I can't control you. I can't be in control of this situation. But Pharaoh's not only trying to hold back some collateral, he's also trying to dictate Israel's worship. What would worship look like for the Israelites when they went out into the wilderness? They would sacrifice animals to their God. They would say to their God, this sacrifice of this animal is meant to communicate to you, God, we deserve your judgment because of our unholiness. But we are sacrificing this in our place. They were supposed to worship God by sacrificing. And Pharaoh knows that and he's saying, you can't take your sacrifices. You can't take your livestock. I'm going to dictate your worship. I'm going to call the shots on what you can and can't do in relation to your God. Much like Satan, much later, would tempt Jesus in the wilderness with the prospect of ruling all the kingdoms of the world without having to go to the cross and sacrifice his life. Pharaoh here is tempting Israel with the prospect of being free from their bondage without offering worship and sacrifice to God. But Israel would not be God's people if they're not worshiping and sacrificing to their God and King. Because God's people all throughout history are known for what? We are worshipers. We are those who devote our lives to our God. We make sacrifices for our God. Not to earn His approval, but because we have His approval. Not to earn merit before God, but because we have it. He is our God and our lives are meant to be lived as an overflow of worship to God. God's people worship God. They serve God. They submit to God. They make sacrifices for God. That's what they do. And to live a life that's not marked by worshiping God, submitting to God, serving God, and making sacrifices for God shows that the version of Christianity that we have believed in is not the one found in the Bible. There are many today who laughingly will say, I am right with God. He has forgiven me. I have trusted in God. And yet, their lives 
show no evidence of true, genuine repentance, true love for God and love for neighbor, no evidence of true transformation. Friends, we are not saved by what we do. We are not saved by our devotion to God, by our church attendance, by our Bible reading, by our loving our neighbor as ourselves. We're, we're not saved by our obedience to God. We're saved by our faith in Jesus' perfect obedience to God. But when we believe in that Jesus and that salvation, God gives us a new heart. God's Spirit indwells us and He changes us. He gives us a new affection for the Lord, a new hunger for God. That is what biblical conversion is. And when we say, I love God with my mouth, and yet it shows no evidence in our day-to-day lives, in our commitments, when we're not worshiping Him, loving Him, sacrificing for Him, serving Him, when that is not happening in our lives, friends, we should ask the question, Do I truly know God in a saving way? Or am I just playing games with God? Because God's people will always worship, submit, serve, and sacrifice for their God. Not to earn His favor, but because they have their favor. Not to please God in order for Him to save them, but because they're already saved. That is the gospel. And and Moses and God are trying to communicate that. They need to make sacrifices to their God. Worshiping God must be dictated by God. Look at what Moses says in verse 26. He says, We must take them, the livestock, why? To serve the Lord. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. He's saying, we're going to worship, but God's going to call the shots for our worship. God's going to make the rules for how we worship Him. We're not just going to go out there willy-nilly and call everything that we do worship. God is God. He gets to call the shots on how we worship. That's the idea that Moses is saying. We're not sure exactly what he's going to tell us to do, but we need all the livestock because if he says to sacrifice all of them, they're his. Moses tells Pharaoh, we can't just go out there and make up rituals and assume we can worship God in any old way because God alone will decide how God is to be worshipped and God's people must be ready to respond when God speaks to them and instructs them to worship. This is extremely instructive for us today. Our worship has to be dictated by God's Word. Sermons that are preached should be faithful to God's Word, not merely opportunities to get something off of our chest. Sermons that are preached today, Bible studies that are taught, Sunday school lessons that involve instruction should be dictated by the Word of God, not just an opportunity to get something off of our chest. It should be much less about the messenger and much more about the message because the power is in the message, not in the person speaking it. And what that means is, is that no matter how gifted someone is at communicating, no matter how powerful of a preacher they seem, no matter how funny their stories are, no matter how powerful and zealous they are, if their message is wrong, we should not listen to it because our worship must be dictated by God, not by man. Our sermons, lessons, 
Bible studies, things we listen to, things we're instructed by, must be dictated by God's Word. The songs that we pick to like and to sing should proclaim truths about God and about the gospel and about His promises and about what He has done. Not merely being opportunities for us to express ourselves. Friends, there are many, many songs today that are shallow and meaningless. Full of phrases that are rooted in pop psychology and cotton candy Christianity and felt needs that say nothing about God and His character, nothing about the work of Christ and the gospel, and it's all about me and how I feel. They're fine to sing. Let's just not pretend that they're honoring God. Prayers that we pray should mirror the prayers of our Lord Jesus, the prayers found by the apostles and prophets and the Psalms. We shouldn't just say the same rote prayer every time that we pray. When we worship, when we sing, when we preach, when we teach, when we pray, when we do all of these things, it must be done by the book according to God's word because He is God and He alone dictates how we worship. We don't just worship in this building. I'm not saying that you can only worship through preaching, praying, and singing. We're called to worship God in everything we do. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And yet we know what glorifies God when we know what God has said. We must be the type of people like Moses who say to Pharaoh, we will worship how the Lord instructs us to worship because he is God and we are not. Pharaoh doesn't like Moses telling him that. Pharaoh hears Moses insisting on taking the livestock to offer sacrifices. And the, the book of Exodus tells us that the Lord actually hardens his heart. So he gets angry with Moses. He begins to yell at Moses. He demands him, get out of my presence. Never, see, never show me your face again. Get out of here or I'll kill you. That's what he says. Then the Lord reminds Moses of something he'd already told him back before the plagues. He reminds him that he will soon take the firstborn sons of Egypt. And the reason that he told us back in Exodus 3, because Egypt has taken God's firstborn son, Israel. God tells Moses that this will be the last judgment. This will be the decisive plague that will finally break Pharaoh. He says, Moses, go tell the people of Israel to go ask all their Egyptian neighbors for their silver and their gold jewelry in advance because when this happens, they're just going to give you everything and say, get out of here. Which is interesting because how was Egyptian so wealthy? How was Egypt so wealthy? Remember what happens at the end of Genesis? There's a, there's a plague and God raised up who? Someone of Jacob's family, Joseph to power, who has dreams, who foretells that this plague is coming, this, this pestilence, or th this, uh, this famine. He tells that that's going to happen so they can store up their grain so that when there is a shortage of food everywhere, where will everyone go? To Egypt. And they can hike up the prices and they can get rich off the world's wealth. The reason Egypt is wealthy and powerful is because God has sent one of his people there to make them that. But when they soon leave, they will leave with the wealth that God had given to them. God will show favor to them. We'll see that in the coming weeks. 
Moses hears this from the Lord. And I think what's happening here is he hears it as he's leaving Pharaoh's presence after being told, get out of here. So he pivots back one last time to speak to Pharaoh. He's just been yelled at by Pharaoh to leave, but he turns back and he says, at midnight, the Lord is coming. He will come near to Egypt and he will take the life of every firstborn, both human and animal, both rich and poor, both powerful and weak. There will be no distinction within Egypt. All the firstborn will die. All of Egypt will mourn. But what will happen to God's people? No Israelite will die. They will be protected. They will be safe. They need not fear. They are God's covenant people. A distinction will be made. Moses tells Pharaoh that he has had enough. God has had enough of your games. Your son, Pharaoh, and all the Egyptian firstborns will die because your heart is heart and because you won't let my people go. Pharaoh, all your people are about to begin to beg me to leave. Moses tells him this, he pivots and he leaves in anger. And what does Pharaoh do? He does nothing. He knows the Lord is powerful. He has seen nine plagues happen. He knows that all the Egyptian gods have been shamed. He knows that he has been shamed by the plague of darkness. The Lord has shown Pharaoh again and again and again that all of his false gods are weak. He has shown him again and again that he is strong. And now the very life of Pharaoh's own son has been threatened. All Pharaoh has to do is relent. All he has to do is stop trying to bargain with God. Stop trying to be your own God. Stop trying to make your own rules. Stop trying to call your own shots. It's not working. That's all you have to do, Pharaoh. Just let my people go and your son will live. If that was me, it's likely I would let Israel go when my son's life is threatened. Because I love my son. But even with that threat, Pharaoh will not let Israel go. Pharaoh loves his power and his pride more than his own son. He loves being in control of his own life and making his own destiny so much that he will not submit to God, even if it means that the life of his firstborn son will be taken away. And remember, Pharaoh's firstborn son would soon be the heir to the throne of Egypt. According to the Egyptian worldview, he too was divine. He would one day also be considered the embodiment of the sun god Amun-Re. This supposedly divine prince of Egypt's life has been threatened and his death would mean to the Egyptians, it would signal to the Egyptians not only that all their Egyptian gods have been shamed, but that they have been totally destroyed. 
All the plagues have been building to this. Their gods have been shamed. Their king has been shown powerless. God's power and might have been displayed. God's people will soon be freed. Deliverance is upon them. The Passover is near. But Pharaoh won't let them go. Why? Because he loves his idols too much. Because as Romans 1 says, he's exchanged the truth about God for a lie and has worshipped and served the creature and the creation more than the creator. And God, who is the true creator of all and therefore the true owner of all, has systematically destroyed all of his rivals, all of the Egyptian gods. And he's done it by what? By decreating his world through the plagues. Remember, this is the same God of Genesis 1 and 2. This is the same God who brought order out of chaos at the beginning. The same God who brought light out of darkness at the beginning. Who brought life out of no life at the beginning. Who brought water and land and the sky out of nothing. Who filled them with animals and fish and birds and reptiles. And in these plagues what God has been doing is he's reversing the order of creation. He's bringing now chaos out of order. He's bringing destruction from the very animals he's created. He's bringing from the water and the land and the sky destruction where he one day brought order out of chaos. He has changed light back to darkness. He is soon going to bring death out of life. Why is he reversing the order of creation? Because God is going to show Pharaoh and all the Egyptians and all the world that he is God that he will accomplish his purposes, he will keep his promises because he is God. His name will be magnified, his people will be redeemed. And the way that he does all of this is by making a distinction between his people, the Israelites, and his enemies, the Egyptians. Did you notice what happened in the text? When Egypt faces the judgment of darkness, where's Israel at? They're in the land of Goshen, in the heart of Egypt, dwelling in bright and beautiful light provided by God. When Egypt will soon face the judgment of the angel of death who will come through and will destroy their firstborn... He says, not a dog will growl against my people Israel. They will be protected by the shed blood of the Passover lamb. These distinctions and all of these great acts of salvation point us forward, friends, to an even greater salvation, an even greater deliverance, an even greater liberation, an even greater exodus that God has planned from the beginning. Because the light that's in Goshen that distinguishes God's people from his enemies in the plagues, pales in comparison to the true light of the world that will come in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Pharaoh being considered the son of Amun-Re, the sun god, is a distorted picture of what? The true son of God who will come and bring salvation to his people. The death of the Egyptians under the judgment of God while Israel is saved by hiding under the blood of a Passover lamb reminds us that our salvation as new covenant people from God's righteous judgment is only possible by being washed in the blood of the greater sacrifice, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, the gospel is the story of God's own Son, eternally existent, all-powerful creator, sustaining the cosmos and sustaining your life. He is the one who is keeping your heart beating at this very second. That God, that King, the Lord Jesus, unchangeable and sovereign, the heir of all things, the owner of all things, the omniscient rock of ages has come as the light of the world to be slain in the darkness of God's judgment, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, perfectly fulfilling the law's demands, laying down His life sacrificially to redeem me and you from God's curse, to bear my punishment I deserve, to bear my wrath that I should face for my sin. He faced the plagues of God's judgment so that I don't have to. Hallelujah. What? A Savior. That's the gospel. That's why we exist. That's why we preach. That's why we sing. That's why we pray. That's the center of the life of a believer. That story. Pharaoh here is sacrificing the life of his own son in order to keep his power. He will not let go of being in charge. Meanwhile, John 3.16 teaches us what? For God so loved the world that he gave what? His only son. He gave him up to die. Not to keep his power. But so that whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. The true God sacrifices his son. So that his love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and compassion will overflow to his undeserving enemies. Friends, that is the gospel. That is our hope. And that is a stark contrast from Pharaoh's selfish, unrepentant power grab. Willing to sacrifice his son... Not to show love, but to keep his power. And to be his own king of his own life. Friends, if we read this story as merely a history lesson. If we consider the book of Exodus to be just an interesting tale of the past with no relevance for our life then we're missing God's point in telling it. Coming to church is not about coming and listening to someone yell at you about the Bible. It's not about coming and checking some religious boxes so you can feel good about yourself. It's not about getting dressed up once a week to come and impress everybody else with your Sunday best. 
It's not about coming and looking at others with judgment, thinking that you're better than them. Gathering together with God's people is about hearing the word of God and responding to it because we recognize that we are not in charge of our own lives and our own futures and our own destinies. And friends, according to the Bible, we are no better than the idol-worshiping Egyptians in Exodus 10 and 11. And we are no better than the faithless Israelites in all the Old Testament who also run after gods. But because our God is faithful, He is able to bring light to our darkness. He is able to redeem us from our bondage through the shed blood of a Savior. And the problem that has to be overcome in each of our lives is that none of us think we're in the darkness. The spiritually blind think that they see fine. And in fact, many of us are so used to living in the world and with the world's values that we don't recognize that we are living in darkness that stands opposed to God. John 3 verse 19 says, Men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Many don't like coming to church and hearing sermons because it brings them face to face with the reality that they are not perfect. And in the world, nobody tells them that. Ephesians 4.18 says that the unbeliever is darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and due to the hardening of their hearts sounds extremely similar to the book of Exodus and Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But the Apostle Paul says that that's not describing Pharaoh and the Egyptians, that's describing anyone who's living their life apart from Christ. 1 John 1.6 says that to disobey God is to walk in darkness. But the verse right before that says God is light and there is no darkness in Him at all. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, says that the story of our salvation is that we are called out of darkness and into a wonderful light. Ephesians 5, 8 says, You once were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Therefore live as children of the light. This theme is all over the Bible. Darkness in the Bible always represents ignorance, sin, judgment, and death. Friends, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, the Bible says that just like the people of Egypt in the ninth plague, that you are living your life in darkness. But you need to run not to the land of Goshen where Israel is dwelling in light, but you need to run to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. 
who fulfilled the law's demands perfectly, who perfectly lived, never sinned, who laid down his life for us, who overcame our enemies and broke our bondage. If you know Christ Jesus this morning, you're called to live as children of light, following our Savior who is the light of the world. If you're here this morning, you have a decision to make, no matter who you are, no matter where you stand before God, no matter your story. If you're living in the darkness and you don't know the Lord, will you come to the light this morning? Will you be redeemed and forgiven and empowered? Or will you stay in your darkness like Pharaoh and the Egyptians and one day face the judgment of a holy God? If you have come to the light, you have trusted in Jesus Christ, but you find yourself living in darkness, you have unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life, you're trying to make bargains with God, you're trying to justify sin, you're not living like someone who has seen the light of the world, will you run back to the light? Will you repent and run back to Jesus? Or will you continue to pretend to follow God while your life is telling a lie? Friends, our Savior Jesus taught that we are to let our light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The question for each and every one of us is how bright is your light shining today? Is your light shining at all? Have you ever come to the light? Do you know the Lord? Are you living for Him? And my prayer as lunchtime is upon us as grumbling stomachs are saying feed me as busy afternoons are occupying our minds is that you'll join me in doing business with God. That you won't leave this morning without honestly, in your heart and mind, answering those significant and eternal questions. In just a few moments, we're going to close in prayer and song. But as we lead up to that time, I want to encourage you to join me and use this as a divine appointment from God to come to the light and to turn from darkness. He can change your life, but you must respond. You must respond. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you this morning for your grace and your mercy. And we acknowledge, Lord, that it is only by your grace and mercy that we can be saved. Lord, we acknowledge this morning that you are a God of light who cannot dwell in darkness. 